Let's head overseas now. Tensions are increasing again these days in the South China Sea after a series of incidents that you may have seen or read about recently that both Canada and Australia say involve Chinese military aircraft taking part in risky maneuvers targeting uh, their military planes. Last week, the Canadian military accused China uh, Chinese planes of not following international safety norms on several occasions, putting a Canadian crew at risk. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday called out China's actions towards Canadian planes taking part in a UN mission that involves keeping an eye on North Korea. China's actions are irresponsible and provocative in this case, and we will continue to register strongly that they are uh, putting uh, people at risk uh, while at the same time not respecting decisions by the UN to enforce UN uh, sanctions on North Korea. China, in the meantime, has come out saying it's defending uh, defending its military pilots, saying they acted properly and were just protecting its sovereignty. So what is going on? Why has this suddenly bubbled up. Joining me now is Gordon Holden. He's a director emeritus of the China Institute, a professor of political science and adjunct professor at the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. Thanks for your time. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Ben. So, I mean, the obvious question, why now? I mean, the South China Sea is always a hot zone, uh, but what is suddenly going on? Well, I think that there's, it's not brand new. I mean, we go back to 2001, the uh, Chinese PLA Air Force um, damaged an American surveillance aircraft, forcing it to land in Hainan. The, the uh, Chinese plane ditched in the water. The pilot was killed. This is an intensification, perhaps, of something that's been going on for a long time. The central problem, to my mind, is that the Chinese have a, a very different view of what is legitimate uh, international waters, international airspace. They are hypersensitive about anything that approaches their shores, on their airspace, and even when you had a Canadian plane that was actually enforcing um, Security Council-approved sanctions against North Korea, the Chinese did not hesitate to harass that plane, which is a dangerous set of maneuvers. I've heard this. some describe this. I think the opposition uh, in Ottawa today described this, or yesterday described this as sort of the act of the undisciplined. Uh, do, do you buy that? Is this undisciplined, or are these pilots carrying out uh, specific orders to go out and harass uh, the planes of other nations that they feel may or may not be uh, intruding on their what they see as their sovereign territory? I actually think that both things could be true. Uh, I think that the PLA, which is a powerful force, it's not much more powerful than their foreign ministry, it's a, not quite a law unto itself. It takes orders from the top, from the party, but it's a powerful political institution. I do believe that they have, they, that is the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, a very conservative, small-c conservative view of Chinese rights, and, and they, particularly as it approaches their shores. On the other hand, you get these very young fighter pilots of any country. They tend to be hot dogs in a sense. They are um, quick reaction. And they may go beyond the strict limits of their orders. Uh, the maneuvers they engage in could be dangerous, both themselves and the aircraft that they're harassing. So I think they could be both uh, somewhat indisciplined, but also following a general order from the top. It strikes me as an incredibly dangerous tactic, though, because if something were to go wrong, and for instance, there were there were some kind of incident involving a Canadian plane on a UN-sanctioned mission, uh, the, the backlash, or at least the repercussions of that, w- would be hard to imagine. It would be serious, obviously. 
I, that's a, I must admit, I, I tend to agree that I'm not sure this makes a tremendous amount of sense for China. Uh, China itself, back in 2017, was part of the UN Security Council, of course, a UN Security Council permanent member, and they agreed and voted for um, Resolution 2371, which set up the the enforcement regime for trying to prevent North Korea from um, acquiring a mass weapons of mass destruction, where they obviously have, but from developing that capacity. So they themselves are on the record voting in favor. But things have shifted a bit since 2017. You have a a more powerful China, China which has a thinner skin when it comes to um, their own area, their own territory. And they are, um, but but I think you're right. The the equation, if they force down uh, uh, aircraft, Canadian or not, enforcing UN sanctions, I think the repercussions would not would exceed any of the benefit they have from patrolling with such studiousness their own approaches to their territory and their own view of international law is is somewhat at variance with that of the international community generally. Certainly, when it comes to their near abroad, so to speak, or at least their shores, they tend to be uh, tend to have sort of take the law into their interpret the law the way they see fit. Uh, for listeners who may not know about this larger battle, the South, the battle over what exactly is China's sovereignty over the South China Sea, is both a very loaded and very important um, fight that's been going on for quite some time now. Absolutely, of course. The two separate areas here we have in question: the Australian aircraft in the South China Sea, which is. Uh, international law applies. The law of the sea applies, which China subscribes to, as does Canada, and as does Australia. And uh, but China has built their own um, islands out of reefs and shoals. They have fortified and militarized the islands they control, and they tend to treat these areas as as if they had status under international law, as if there's no dispute about who they belong to. But the law of the sea is a very different approach, uh, which is distinct from the Chinese. But up in the, in the East China Sea, near North Korea, where Canadian planes have been operating, they have similar sensitivities about islands they dispute with Japan, uh, with South Korea, and anything, as you, said, as you indicated, that approaches their shores, but isn't within their international waters, it isn't within their national airspace, they tend to see themselves as uh, basically in charge and are prepared to respond uh, they didn't shoot the aircraft down, but but for the reaction of the Canadian pilots and changing course, you could have had a tragedy, which would have been an international incident of the first magnitude. What does Canada do here? I mean, obviously, uh, the Prime Minister was, was saying that they'll condemn this, but quickly the Chinese dismissed this out of hand, at least in state media. Uh, and according to the mouth, you know, those doing the talking for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in China, there were there was no contrition for this, not even an admission that perhaps this was dangerous. This was, according to them, everything was just fine. They're not going to admit they're wrong in any aspect. That, they, that is, they basically just repeat the same lines um, Canada's at fault, we are not. However, it's possible uh, that when I think back to 2001 when they lost their own aircraft in a collision and the American plane was forced to land on Hainan Island where it was taken apart and examined, the Chinese never accepted any blame for that. However, in my opinion, there was a period afterwards where they were somewhat more cautious. I think under Xi Jinping, things are slightly less cautious again, but we'll see. It may well be that on careful examination, 
Chinese, considering this is a UN mission, that it may not be that wise to to exert quite that level of surveillance and harassment, a danger, putting in danger their own aircraft and those of Canada, and the aircraft of Canada, the Aurora patrol plane. So we will may see. They're never going to admit they were wrong, but I'd be interested to see if perhaps they call back their aircraft from being quite as aggressive. But don't expect an apology and don't expect a fundamental change. They just might be perhaps, and I would hope, a little more careful. It's probably important to note, too, that the Australians have a new leader. And I gather the Chinese always like to welcome a new leader, uh, Australian leader specifically, uh, with a little saber rattling just to make sure that uh, they're aware of of what China's stance is on, on Australia, at least doing what it wants to do in the South China Sea. Fair point. But that, again, I'd argue is probably an error because the Labour government traditionally had a softer policy towards China um, by forcing the issue uh, with a military action against an Australian aircraft. They may, in effect, force the new government to take a harder line than they might otherwise have taken. Uh, I'd argue let the wiser course might have been Let's see if we can somehow improve that relationship. Our own relationship with China is actually a little bit better. It's hard to imagine because ours is very, very bad. The Australians are in a worse position. And I, I suspect that these sorts of, of actions, which the new Prime Minister of Australia uh, called an act of aggression against Australia, uh, may be hardening the view of the new government precisely at a time when the Chinese ought to be uh, courting them in some fashion. I'm speaking with Gordon Holden. He's a director emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. We're talking about some incidents recently involving both Canadian, a Canadian Aurora aircraft uh, doing UN work surveilling uh, North Korea over sanctions uh, in the East China Sea and an Australian aircraft in the South China Sea. And just what exactly, what message China has been sending with these incidents. Uh, Coming up, I'm glad we talked about Australia because I I find this whole uh, South Pacific Solomon Islands uh, trip that was made recently uh, by a top uh, Chinese official and this big security pact they've signed with China, the Solomon Islands, which is only a few thousand kilometers off the shores of Australia. Just what exactly is China up to? We'll talk about that after this. We're speaking with Gordon Holden this half hour. He's the Director Emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. He's also a professor of political science and an adjunct professor at the Alberta School of Business at the U of A. Um, this was a really interesting thing. The Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi, uh, was in the South Pacific recently on the Solomon Islands. They've signed a big security pact. I think he was in Fiji as well. Um, the Chinese clearly have a strategy to the South Pacific. This goes far beyond China's shores, obviously, when it comes to them looking to uh, expand their uh, their reach within that territory. Absolutely. The um Chinese have global ambitions. They have the world's largest navy. I think the U.S. Navy is still more capable, but the Chinese Navy is increasing its strength on a regular basis. Um, And they're looking beyond that first island chain of of the uh, Taiwan and Philippines, beyond that into South Pacific. They already have a lot of interest there in terms of mining, fisheries, etc., but also political and strategic view. And, And Solomon Islands are... Relatively close to Australia, the distances in the Pacific are vast. It's some 3,000 kilometers away, but the Australians in particular and the Americans have memories of Guadalcanal back in 1942-43 in when the Japanese and Americans tussled over uh, parts of the Philippines, particularly uh, of the Solomons, particularly Guadalcanal, in tremendous struggles. And if you look at a map of the Pacific, 
Solomons are very close to Australia and lie right aside the shipping routes and, and supply routes between America and Australia. So it makes both the Americans, but especially the Australians, very nervous. You know, before the war in Ukraine erupted, uh, one would often hear people talk about just how volatile that region is going to become over the next little while, that really that would be the flashpoint of something uh, of something very serious in the decades to come. I know we've been, you know, attention's been very much paid uh, to Russia and Ukraine right now, but that feels like where the real the battle is going to lie going forward. Fair enough. If you look at the Pentagon documents, even today, um, Russia, Ukraine are seen as an extraordinarily important struggle, but Washington is not, the Pentagon in particular, has not taken its eye off China, which they view as the principal threat to U.S. interests in the world. Um, it's still a region of relative peace, that is, South Pacific Sea and Asia, but it is seen as um, absolutely crucial to U.S. power in this 21st century much more significant in the long run in their view, that is American views, Americanized than, than Russia. What have you made so far? I mean, we spoke about this uh, a while back, but what have you made now that we're 100 days plus into this war in Ukraine? Uh, what have you made so far about how China's handling this diplomatically? It seems to still be tacitly supporting uh, the Kremlin uh, without coming out too publicly, but what do you think is going on behind the scenes? Well, I think that China is actually not over the moon or that delighted by the Ukraine conflict. I think they knew something was coming. I didn't think they thought that Putin would be as ambitious as he was. And China, in my view, is still in a period of growing its strength. It's not ready for a huge conflict as yet. They are immensely trade dependent, um, far more so than the United States. And they want a period of economic stability um, to maintain and to build their support for the Chinese people. People in China are generally not keen believers in Marxism. They're keen believers in the government. Please deliver for us a high standard of living. So they have to look at that very carefully. And a, a broad war, in my view, is not in the Chinese interest at this time. So I think they're very nervous about that. They have helped Russia in terms of buying their energy, selling them some goods. But a lot of Chinese companies, even Huawei, are very nervous about being active in Russia right now for fear of broad sanctions from the West. Yeah, it's, it's certainly been interesting to watch happen because you'd get the, you get the impression that, that China could play a bit of a mediator role here if it so chose, um, but hasn't. I, I'm wondering why that might be. There's no sign of it as yet. And I think the situation may not be ripe as yet. China, ironically, is very strong in favor of territorial integrity, non-interference. So by Chinese traditional foreign policy, they ought to be aghast at the Russian actions. But they do know also that Russia is an absolutely key state for them that helps prevent, in their eyes, in their eyes, I emphasize, China being um, surrounded or encircled by the West. So they're not, and they also have huge economic stake in, in Russia. So I think that their, their, their economic interests, their strategic interests, push them to be a supporter of, of Moscow in this campaign. But they have wisely, I think, drawn back from supplying military gear or even becoming directly involved. You're not seeing Chinese weapon systems pouring into Ukraine, and I don't think you're likely to see that. They are looking to Chinese interests above all. 
I imagine. And, and Ukraine's a long way from China, but Russia certainly isn't. They share a very long border. Um, you mentioned Huawei, and we haven't talked about this yet, but we haven't seen a whole lot of pushback from China about uh, Canada's decision to to block Huawei from our from everything, just about, certainly from 5G. But uh, we haven't seen a lot of uh, blowback from China on that one yet. And I was a bit surprised by that. I thought they'd be a little more pointed. They haven't. And it, and you can speculate as the reasons for that. It could well be that they considered it um, a done deal. That China, had, the shoe hadn't dropped, but that China knew that that was likely what Canada was going to do. I mean, the telecoms country, companies in Canada had mostly move forward with other equipment from Nokia, from Samsung, um, and, and uh, had uh, Ericsson, etc. They, in effect, had couldn't wait any longer. They'd gone ahead. They saw the writing on the wall. So maybe the China also decided, well, this is one we're going to lose. I do believe that they were chuffed at the fact that this came one day after their decision to lift the embargo on two major Canadian companies that sell canola into China. So the fact that came right after that had to be an irritant to them. Um, But I think they have a lot of issues. And again, the Chinese government, we say the Chinese, Chinese government is, even with Xi Jinping, is complex. The PLA, relatively hard line, particularly when it comes to the question of sovereignty, such as in harassing Canadian aircraft. But the question of of, um, Huawei canola, et cetera. These are partly economic decisions that are taken by different ministries. And you cannot always assume, be dangerous to assume, that every part of the Chinese government operates in precisely the same manner. I also wondered what would be their reaction. But I think so far, and unlike in the case of Australia to date, uh, I think after the release of Meng Wanzhou, you're seeing a Chinese government that wants to improve relations with Canada. But on the Canadian side in particular, the trust is largely gone. The public is fairly hostile, if not hostile. Uh, so we can't expect an early improvement. But it's an interesting question you pose. Gordon Holden, as always, thank you so much for your time tonight. Always interesting to chat about uh, what's going on in uh, in China these days. Thank you, Ben. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much.